Thank you, everybody, for attending our late afternoon session. Um, this is a topic that we're really passionate about, so we're really happy to see you guys in the audience today. Uh, just briefly, we don't have any disclosures. We're not going to be discussing any off-label uh, drug or product use. Our objectives today are to explain the role of opioids in the management of chronic non-cancer pain, um, identify adverse physiologic effects of opioids and the risks of opioid misuse, abuse, and addiction in patients receiving prescription opioids for chronic non-cancer pain. And then my colleague, Dr. Prasad, is going to elaborate a bit more on psychological and behavioral interventions that can be incorporated into treatment to improve functional outcomes and minimize the reliance on prescription opioids. So we all know prescription opioids are bad. By the end of today, you've realized that, yes, they are the leading cause currently of overdose deaths in the United States as a sole agent or in conjunction with other sedatives. And prescription opioid death rates, sales, and substance abuse uh, treatment admissions have climbed in parallel over the past decade. And the current cost of non-medical prescription opioid use just in the United States alone is over $50 billion annually. So prescription opioids, we know, cause a number of adverse effects, namely tolerance, the need for higher doses of medication to provide the same analgesic effect, physical dependence manifested by a withdrawal syndrome, immunosuppression, opioid-induced endocrinopathy, and our most feared complication of respiratory depression and sedation. So what do we know about prescription opioids? Well, increased rates of substance abuse and depression seem to exist in long-term prescription opioid users compared to non-users with chronic pain. And what's really concerning here is that pain intensity does not seem to predict treatment with opioids versus, say, a non-opioid analgesic like an NSAID. So there is inherently some difference between our patients who choose to treat themselves with prescription opioids rather than other medications. And it seems that depression and anxiety contribute to substance use disorders amongst long-term opioid users. So perhaps as providers, we are creating a situation where patients have some degree of persistent opioid use, and that puts them at risk for either non-medical use or maybe even addiction. So really, are we creating a problem? Well, the real rates of addiction following legitimate prescription opioid exposure might be as high as 10%. So just imagine every one out of 10 patients that you have may be at risk for developing a real addiction disorder. And 30 to 80% of prescription opioid addicts seek inpatient treatment reported that they had legitimately been prescribed opioids at some point for pain by a physician that they later went on to abuse. So this iatrogenic issue is real, and we should claim some responsibility for helping our patients minimize their reliance on opioids. So surgery is a microcosm where patients have some degree of a consistent tissue injury and they need to respond to healing uh, with managing pain and using pain medications. So we can learn a little bit about persistent opioid use from uh, surgical data. And what we find is that even ambulatory or low pain surgeries exposing elderly adults to new prescription opioids increases their risk of long-term opioid use by 44% one year after surgery. Um, also concerning is that over 60% of people who receive 90 days of continuous opioid therapy 
remain on opioids years later. So just imagine if you place somebody on uh, some amount of prescription opioids and they're taking them for about three months, you may as well expect that they are likely to be returning to your office for several years for prescription opioid refills. So about 45 million Americans undergo surgery every year. And if you think about any previous surgeries that you've had, a lot of times the surgeon's going to give you a prescription for, say, Vicodin, and the general understanding is that if you stop having pain that you're going to stop taking your medications. And patients are usually left with very little instruction on how they should stop those pain medications. So what we do know is that the amount of prescribed opioids does not influence whether or not people want to continue to take their opioid medications or whether they discontinue them. Because invariably, most surgeons tend to prescribe the same amount of opioids over and over again for the same type of surgery. But patients have very wide ranges in variability in opioid needs after similar procedures. So just a little bit of data from my colleagues. This is a pilot cohort study, a mixed surgical cohort of about 100 patients. And we were looking at risk factors for continued opioid use and prolonged pain after surgery. And we did a battery of psychological testing, uh, risk factors for addiction, et cetera. And so this was, in a nutshell, what we found. So patients who were given any type of opioids prior to surgery, prescribed opioids, had a very significant reduction in the rate of opioid cessation after surgery. Other risk factors were if patients felt they were more likely to be addicted to their pain medication after surgery, and if they had elevated levels of depression, it seemed like it was harder for people to stop taking their opioids after surgery. So we wanted to know, is this a real phenomenon, or does this relate to some of the symptoms that patients have after surgery, such as tiredness or fatigue, that can influence that back depression inventory? So we delved a little bit deeper and did a factor analysis to look at what was really causing or driving this association with the Beck depression inventory and prolonged opioid use. And we came up with three different factors, which we named uh, self-loathing, motivational, and emotional symptoms. And I just want you to pay attention to uh, the contents of the BDI that describe this self-loathing symptoms category, which is different than, say, the motivational symptoms that include some of those somatic factors I mentioned, like tiredness or fatigue, concentration difficulty, changes in sleeping pattern, because a lot of these things can occur after surgery. Uh, what we did find, though, was in our multivariate analysis that, yes, actually the self-loathing factor was driving the association of the Beck depression inventory and elevated depressive symptoms with prolonged opioid use after surgery. So this kind of mirrors the data that we're seeing in the chronic opioid use literature. And here you can see in this surgical cohort that none of the patients who reported any self-loathing symptoms whatsoever, um, they all stopped taking their opioids about 117 days after surgery. And yes, we call these patients every single day after surgery to check on them to see what pain medications they were taking, what level of pain they had. Uh, but in contrast, about 17% of patients who did have some degree of self-loathing symptoms continued to take their opioids after surgery. So what our hypothesis is, is perhaps these patients have some degree of elevated depression prior to surgery, and they experience some opioid-mediated blunting of their negative post-operative emotional responses, and this leads to this continued self-medication and reinforcement. 
So is this really happening elsewhere? We wanted to look and see. Well, in fact, in about 60% of patients uh, abuse drugs for symptoms of depression, and specifically when we look at prescription opioid use, uh, those opioid abusers with major depressive disorder actually do use drugs more often in response to feeling depressed uh, than other patients without major depressive disorder. And if we look at a cross-sectional cohort of patients with no substance abuse history, depression is associated with some degree of self-reported opioid misuse. And basically, any pre-existing comorbidities are associated with subsequent non-medical opioid use and an increased likelihood of subsequent opioid dependence. So there's definitely a connection between a patient's existing emotional state and how they respond to taking their prescription opioids. So what's the data for opioids for chronic non-cancer pain? Well, prescribing has dramatically increased over the past decade, and this has resulted in our current prescription opioid epidemic. Uh, there have been several systematic reviews examining randomized controlled trials that do show some degree of moderately improved pain, function, and disability for opioids compared to placebo. But I think the main shortcoming here is that the randomized controlled trials are, are very short. So we don't have a lot of follow-up data beyond several months. And that's really what we would need to see in terms of making a definitive um, call as to the indication of long-term opioid therapy for chronic non-cancer pain. And they're widely prescribed for a variety of conditions. And there are a number of adverse effects, as we discussed earlier. Uh, additional ones listed here, including urinary hesitancy and retention. Um, in these systematic reviews, the rates of addiction quoted are extremely low. And I think it's a significant underestimation of what is actually happening in, in reality. So let's talk a little bit about opioid tapering. Well, if we look at our addiction medicine literature, there's actually not that much data on opioid tapering because a lot of times patients do better on some degree of maintenance therapy. But we, what we do know is if we look at opioid detoxification and chronic pain, that this can be done either in an outpatient or an inpatient setting with favorable outcomes. So namely, decreased pain, increased functioning, decreased depression, decreased catastrophizing. So if you have a patient sitting in the room with you going, well, I'm not really too sure if I want to stop taking my opioids, uh, you know, there is definitely a good body of literature to say that patients can taper their medications and it's actually going to help decrease their pain and increase their function. Um, and patients with comorbid chronic pain and opioid misuse can undergo uh, tapering without increasing their pain or decreasing their quality of life. So what are the guidelines for opioid therapy? Well, just to think about when you're initiating opioids, we want to do a thorough patient evaluation. And as I presented to you some data earlier, definitely a thorough psychological assessment as well as assessing for psychosocial risk factors are important to identify a potential drug misuse and abuse. Having a really thorough informed consent, which involves a risk and benefit discussion is important. And beginning a very conservative trial of opioid therapy is important. And I think the one factor that is involved with continued monitoring is looking for the four A's of opioids. Namely, what we look for is, do the patients get analgesia? Do they have an increase in their activity? Are there any aberrant behaviors or adverse effects?
So what are the society guidelines? Because there is not a lot of uh, scientific data, we are relying on a little bit of expert opinion here. So the American Pain Society and the American Academy of Pain Medicine recommend that clinicians should evaluate patients engaging in aberrant drug-related behaviors for appropriateness of chronic opioid therapy or need for restructuring of therapy, referral for assistance in management, so this might be to an addiction medicine colleague or discontinuation of chronic opioid therapy. And they go along to say that uh, clinicians should consider tapering or weaning patients off of opioids who engage in repeated aberrant drug-related behaviors. And I think the key here is repeated because we don't want to necessarily automatically engage in an opioid taper with, say, one inconsistent urine drug screen. We really want to identify a pattern and make sure that we have some good reasons laid out for why we want to decrease a patient's opioids. And again, documenting those four A's of opioid use will be helpful over time. You could go back into your records and say, you know, there really hasn't been any functional gains or you're still having a lot of side effects with multiple opioid trials. Um, and another thing, so they mentioned is here, experiencing no progress towards meeting the therapeutic goals and experience of intolerable adverse effects. So they do encourage that the opioid tapering can occur in an outpatient setting without severe medical or psychiatric comorbidities. In general, doing an opioid taper and resulting opioid withdrawal is usually not enough to cause uh, significant medical comorbidities. Um, Sometimes, unfortunately, we do have to do an enforced weaning and a referral to an addiction specialist. But ideally, in a perfect world, if you do have a patient with comorbid pain and addiction, that the addiction specialist would be involved with the tapering and potentially maintenance therapy concomitantly while you're treating their pain, rather than just doing one at a time. So their ranges of dose reductions are about 10% weekly or 25 to 50% every few days. And I think the key message here is that you can go pretty quickly when patients are on higher doses of oral morphine equivalents of opioids. So above 200 milligrams per day, they say it can be more rapid. And at doses of 60 to 80 oral morphine equivalents, you need slower tapers. But in general, as the CDC guidelines say, the longer a patient has been taking opioids, it's going to be a long-term process. And I tell a lot of patients, you know, this is really going to be a marathon. This is not something, you know, that you're just going to mechanically follow a protocol that's been predetermined. It really does require some close monitoring. In terms of uh, the National Opioid Use Guideline Group, so this is a Canadian consensus group. Uh, they have several indications for opioid tapering, including severe pain despite adequate trial of multiple opioids, other medical complications, so worsening of central sleep apnea with increased opioids, maybe uh, multiple falls, and they also mentioned structured opioid therapy for patients with comorbid addiction and pain. So some of their key points here are transitioning to some sort of long-acting agent. Uh, they discuss the use of controlled release morphine. Uh, you can use potentially methadone, uh, even long-acting OxyContin, but the goal here is scheduled doses and a consistent daily schedule. So transitioning a patient from any type of PRN dosing to a, just a consistent twice or three time a day dosing schedule. And they do say 10% of the total daily dose reduction or 5% every one to four weeks. 
they also do uh, encourage decreasing the uh, taper rate once about a third of that dose is reached. And they mention some monitoring, which requires um, looking at their pain levels. So if patients are experiencing moderate to severe pain, I would say usually seven out of 10 or above, uh, it would be good to hold on the taper. Severe withdrawal would be um, anything, for example, on the short opiate withdrawal scale. If they're having a lot of symptoms of opioid withdrawal to a worsening degree, it would, again, be important to consider potentially temporarily increasing an opioid dose or giving a rescue dose of opioid. So what does the American Society of Interventional Pain Physicians say? I think we're going to start to see a trend here. Um, Again, 10% of the original dose weekly, that's the recommendation with tapering over six to eight weeks. They also add a little bit of information about supportive therapy that can be useful for tapering, namely clonidine, which is an alpha-2 agonist and also an antihypertensive. So you could use either clonidine tablets, 0.1 or 0.2 milligrams by mouth every six hours, or a clonidine patch. What I tend to do is because the patch takes about 12 hours to kick in, I would give a patient about a day's worth of clonidine tablets and tell them to put the patch on, and hopefully they get continuous coverage as soon as that clonidine is prescribed. Uh, what's important to note is patients can continue to have opioid withdrawal symptoms even up to six months after discontinuation. So after those physiologic effects of opioid withdrawal go away, there's more of a psychological withdrawal profile that's very prolonged. And one of the things, one of the reasons we like to personally use things like methadone is because it does have more of a favorable psychological withdrawal profile than some of the shorter acting agents or maybe, say, oxycodone. So in conclusion, the safety and efficacy of long-term opioid therapy for chronic pain remains undetermined, but opioid therapy remains a very important treatment option in the interdisciplinary management of a broad range of pain conditions. Not to mention that a lot of patients that you may inherit may uh, be on higher doses of opioids. And so this is a problem that, or a challenge that a lot of us providers would be facing. And opioid cessation should be considered in the context of a number of situations, including adverse effects, uh, aberrant drug behaviors, and a lack of treatment efficacy. So I'm actually going to turn it over to uh, my colleague, Dr. Prasad, who's going to talk more about the um, psychological management during opioid tapering. All right, so today, a significant amount of education on the role of opioids in pain care. Um, let's say that after all this education, you go back home and you decide that there are some patients that you have that you feel are not on appropriate levels of opiate medications. You want to taper them down either due to a lack of efficacy or because they don't meet the four A's that Dr. Ha talked about. Um, certainly, there's different uh, sliders not working. All right. Uh, certainly, there are different medications that can be used, but what's also important to do when we're trying to do a taper successfully is we want to make sure that we're paying attention to all the other variables that can be affecting the person's pain condition. Um, if you take a patient's opiates away, over the course of time, they've come to rely on that opiate medication as a tool to manage their pain. Now, regardless of how effective that tool is, the patient's perspective is still that this is a tool, a primary tool that I'm using. And you can look at it as being kind of like the legs on the chair that you're sitting on right now. Right? If I were to dismantle the chair and take one leg away, and you're sitting there with three legs, would you want to sit on that chair anymore? Probably not. 
Right? It's not going to be very stable. It's not going to support you. And it's the same type of a thing with the patient that if you take away one of the primary tools that they use to manage their pain, and if you don't replace it with another tool, you're putting them in a very precarious situation. Right? So one of the things that we find when we're helping patients taper off of medications is we supplement it with a wide range of different non-pharmacologic tools that they can use so that they've got another leg to stand on, so they have more support underneath them so that they can be successful with the wean and continue to have a higher level of functionality. You know, over the course of this conference and other conferences, I'm sure you guys have all had exposure to uh, the roles of different behavioral treatment modalities in pain management. And so I'm going to go over some of these things with you guys in a little bit more detail because I think it's important to understand more than just the keywords of, oh, cognitive behavioral therapy or, oh, relaxation training, because those are just words unless you have a good understanding of what those things are. And so I'm going to spend a bit of time today talking about what actually happens um, when we use those different types of modalities with patients and how it's beneficial for them. But where does this fit into the context of care for our patients? Well, we know that all pain is not the same, right? We know that we have acute pain, we've got chronic pain. We know that acute pain has a fix, and by definition, it's going to go away. The majority of the time, simply using a biomedical model is going to be satisfactory, and it's going to accomplish the desired outcomes. With chronic pain, we know that there is no fixed endpoint. And so without the fixed endpoint, we focus on more of a management approach, but with this, it also requires us not to stick to just a biomedical model, but to look at a biopsychosocial perspective on how to characterize the patient's pain, which is basically looking at the biological, psychological, and social factors. So this is similar to other health conditions that don't have a cure, right? Diabetes, asthma, heart disease, all of these are chronic medical conditions that we can't fix, right? But that doesn't mean that a person who's diagnosed with these, um, that it's game over for them. A person can have one of these chronic medical conditions and still have a very full and productive life if they do the different things that are necessary to keep that condition managed. And uh, just like diabetes has a number of things associated with it, in chronic pain we know that medical optimization, physical reconditioning, and behavioral changes are the key pieces that can help a person managing their pain condition. What I'm going to focus on today is the behavioral and lifestyle modification. I'm going to expand on that a bit to help you understand a little bit more about what these different tools are. So the primary goal that we have in behavioral and lifestyle modification is to try to help patients learn more self-management tools. Uh, a lot of times when patients rely primarily just on opiate medications, they have a very strong external locus of control regarding management of their pain. And what that means is they perceive that control of their pain comes from something external to them, right? In this case, it's the medications. My medication controls whether or not I feel good. My medication controls whether or not I'm able to engage in activity. Um, and when that happens, a person's confidence in their own self or their own ability to manage their pain is pretty low, and they have a high level of confidence in external factors. So teaching patients more about the behavioral lifestyle tools uh, involves shifting their locus of control from more of an external locus of control to internal. What are some of the things that I can do to better manage my pain? And ultimately, the goal here is to improve uh, self-efficacy. So in psychology, the types of things that we oftentimes focus on um, in our interactions with patients are some of these different types of things. We provide patients with an overview of pain. You know, the differences between acute and chronic pain. I'll spend many sessions going over that same information with patients because a lot of time, well, all the patients that we see in our clinic and in our inpatient program have chronic pain, but over the years of living with their pain condition, all their clinicians have been approaching their pain for more of an acute modality. So just helping the patients make a cognitive shift from looking at their pain as something that needs to be fixed to, well, how can I learn to live with this, takes a little bit of time to get people to wrap their minds around that. So we spend a bit of time with that overview. Uh, we talk about activity regulation. We know that with living with chronic pain, if you do too much, you'll pay for it. 
If you do too little, you'll pay for it. So navigating that fine line between doing too much and too little is part of what we teach when we educate them on pacing of activities. We talk about the relationship between stress and pain, different things that people can do to manage that relationship, relaxation training, sleep hygiene, uh, identification of environmental stressors, stress management techniques, communication skills development, and most importantly, flare management planning. We know that we can't fix chronic pain. And so if that's the case, what's inevitable is that a person is going to have pain flares. That's just a part of living with a chronic pain condition. But if this is something that we can predict, if we know that there's going to be a pain flare at some point in the future, it makes sense that we should teach people how they manage those flares, right? A lot of times, again, in a purely biomedical model, what that's comprised of is this is your regular medication and this is your rescue medication. And the rescue medication is for those flares. Well, we teach patients, again, behavioral tools that they can use when they have those pain flares. But the reality is, is if a patient is successfully implementing all the different behavioral lifestyle modification tools, we're able to help them decrease the frequency, intensity, and duration of pain flares so that, yes, they still do get pain flares, but if they use these different tools, the amount of time they stay in that flare is much less so that they can get back to a higher quality of life. So of all these things, I'm going to spend more time expanding on relaxation training and on the cognitive behavioral piece because these are the things that I think you most often hear. You, when, I, when I talk to primary care physicians or I talk to pain specialists and I'll ask them um, you know, what they think psychologists do, um, they'll say, well, you guys do like that breathing stuff and cognitive behavioral stuff, right? And I'm like, yeah, but what is that? Well, you know, it's like breathing and cognitive behavioral stuff, right? <laughs> so it, it, I appreciate that people at least understand that that's what we do. But what I think would be more helpful is if you guys are able to understand what those things really are. Um, how do these things help patients? Because this will also help inform your dialogues that you have with your patients, right? I appreciate that in the communities you live in, you may not have access to a pain psychologist. And so a lot of these things may fall on your shoulders to try and help educate patients. And so I want to give you guys a simple background. Um, well, in 25 minutes, try to go over what's taken years of learning to do, but just give you a primer on what uh, these skills look like. So the first part, uh, physiology of stress. You know, I'm in a group of uh, clinicians here, so all of you are pretty familiar with the nervous system. If you're not, there's some other CEs you should probably attend than this one. But basically, you're all familiar with the autonomic nervous system and the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system, right? When we get exposed to stress, the brain detects the presence of a stressor, and it automatically activates the sympathetic nervous system, right? We do nothing to make this happen. It's whenever the brain detects the presence of a stressor, it causes this activation. When we get sympathetic activation, heart rate increases, blood pressure increases, blood vessels constrict, muscle tension increases, digestive processes slow down, stress hormones get released in the body. All these things, changes happen immediately. As soon as the brain detects that a stressor is no longer present, it activates a parasympathetic nervous system, right, which brings the body right back down to its baseline state. And again, we don't do anything to make this happen, right? The body, or the brain detects the presence of a stressor, causes the activation of the sympathetic or parasympathetic nervous system. So why am I droning on about this? Well, this is one of the mechanisms for how stress can influence pain. You know, if you look at some of the, act, the activation that occurs or some of the changes that occur when we get sympathetic activation, and if we think about a person with pain, if a person's got low back pain, and if their muscles are chronically tighter than they need to be, the blood vessel's a bit more constricted, it makes sense that while that's not the primary cause of their pain, it's going to exacerbate any pain that they have in that particular part of their body, right? And so this is one of the mechanisms, not the only mechanism, but one, why stress can worsen pain. Um, what's also important to recognize is this degree, the sympathetic nervous system activation occurs in the face of any type of stress, right? 
we all may differentiate a physical stressor from an emotional stressor, but to the brain, stress is stress. It's still going to cause some degree of activation of the nervous system. The magnitude of the activation differs depending on the nature of the stressor, but we're still going to get some degree of stress activation. And this is what's at the, the core of polygraph tests, is looking at different aspects of physiological reactivity uh, to try to see if deceit is occurring. So if this is true, pain itself is a physical stressor. So the physical experience of pain is going to cause activation of the sympathetic nervous system. That sympathetic nervous system activation is going to turn around and feed back into the pain. So just the physical experience of pain can feed off itself, right? But that's just the physical experience of pain. When folks have pain, there are emotions that come with it as well. Right? A person may have anxiety, anger, guilt, sadness. The thing is, each of these, while they're emotions, they're also stressors. So each of these also causes some degree of activation in the nervous system and feeds back into that pain loop. But we're still talking about just the experience of pain. People have lives outside their pain, and there's stress in life outside of that. Relationship issues, financial strain, issues related to diet, related to sleep. All of these things are also, if, if we assume that a person has just one stressor and one emotion in each of these categories, that's going to feed into the pain. Right? And again, that's an underestimate because people clearly have more than just one emotion and one stressor. So when we look at this, yes, a person's got pain, but there's so many other things that are feeding into it, right? Simple opiate therapy or simple pharmacologic management by itself isn't going to break this cycle consistently and on a long-term basis. So one of the ways that we help patients learn to break this cycle on the far side is by teaching them breathing and relaxation exercises, where even as stressful situations are occurring, what are things that you can do to try and calm this nervous system reactivity down? And with the breathing exercises, there are three simple steps. I'm not going to go through and explain all of them to you um, in detail, but basically, breathing needs to be deep, diaphragmatic breaths. They need to be slow. But the most important part of this is the mind control, right? If a person is stuck in this cycle where there are all these different stressors that are feeding into their experience of pain, they just get off the phone, they have an argument with somebody who says something really hurtful to them. They find that their pain starts to flare. Um, they say, you know what, I'm going to try to do those breathing exercises that I was taught. They start to do these deep, slow breaths, but their brain keeps fixating on the argument. They keep fixating on the hurtful thing that was said. Those thought processes are stressful, and so they're going to cause activation of the nervous system, and it's going to undermine any benefit that they may get from trying to do the breathing exercises in the first place. So they're going to walk away from that saying, well, breathing exercises don't work, right? But it's not that breathing doesn't work. It's that they hadn't refined their use of that skill, right? So... That's one simple thing. I mean, I went through that relatively quickly. And, and the, the part about a lot of the behavioral tools is none of this stuff is rocket science. And all of this is extremely easy to comprehend, right? But knowing and doing are two completely different things, right? I challenge you guys, at some point during the day today, I want you to try to quiet your mind and just have your mind be more still, not actively thinking about a lot of things. It's very hard to do. And especially when we're talking about people living with chronic pain, Trying to help them learn how to get that control over their minds is extremely difficult to do. Not impossible, but a challenging thing. If we go back to the diagram, oh, well, why does this work? Why does this work is because we're basically uh, triggering parasympathetic activity, right? As a person starts to regulate their breathing, what they're doing is sending a signal to the brain that there's not a stressor present. The brain activates a parasympathetic nervous system, which helps bring the body back down to a calmer state. We go back to this diagram. This is the breathing breaks the cycle on this side, but we really also need to learn how to break the cycle here, right? Even if all this stress is going on, how can we stop that from even triggering the sympathetic activation? How can we even stop the stressors 
from feeding into our emotional states. And this is where cognitive behavioral work comes in. How many of you are familiar, just with the show of hands, of cognitive behavioral work? And not just the words, but what actually happens. Okay. So I'm going to demystify it for you. I'm going to show you what it is. Basically, cognitive processes mediate our responses to different situations. Very simple model that you can use to understand this. Most things in life occur in this kind of a linear fashion. Some sort of situation or event occurs. We have some cognitive interpretation of that, mental interpretation of it, which directly leads to our emotional, physical, and behavioral consequences. Real simply, right? It says that we feel the way we feel, behave the way we behave, we have the degree of physiological arousal that we do, not based on a situation, but based on how we interpret that situation, right? You can use a simple example to illustrate this. You know, if the situation is, I say, I'm going to pick on you because you're sitting in the front. If I say, I like the scarf you're wearing, right? If you think to yourself, if the way you interpret that is, well, that's really nice of him to say. I like this color purple myself, and I thought it looked nice with my black jacket. I'm glad that he noticed it. Right? If that's how you're interpreting it, consequently, emotionally, you might feel happy, right? Behaviorally, you might smile. Physiologically, you're not going to have a high level of sympathetic activation of the nervous system because it's not a stressful situation, and you're feeling the way you feel because of the way you interpret the situation. Same situation. I say that's a nice scar scarf you have on. If you think to yourself, what the heck is his problem? Why is he picking on my scarf, right? Why can't he pick on somebody else? When I bought this scarf at home, I had a neighbor comment about this scarf. Why is everybody so fixated on me and what I wear instead of minding their own business, right? If that's how she interprets the situation, emotionally, she's going to feel irritated. She's going to be upset. Behaviorally, she might snap at me, right? And physiologically, because of that stress, she's going to have a higher level of sympathetic activation and if she's got a pain condition, that higher level of sympathetic activation is going to drive her pain, right? But let's take a look at this. If, if, we, if we go up to her when she's, when she's smiling, she's beaming, and somebody says, why are you smiling? Oh, because he made a nice comment about my scarf. Same situation, though, where you say, but you're frowning. Why are you frowning? Oh, because of the comments he made about my scarf. She keeps attributing it to the situation, but it's not the situation that's causing the outcomes. It's the thought processes, Right? But this is a mistake that we all, not a mistake, but this is a tendency that we all have, is we tend to act like we're stimulus response creatures. We ignore that middle part, which is our thought processes, right? And part of it is because that's not how we speak, right? She's not going to say, oh, I'm frowning because of the way I'm interpreting the situation of him commenting on my scarf, right? That's not how we talk. So, but also, our thoughts are automatic. And there's a reason why a lot of our thought processes are automatic. It's an adaptive process. If we had to stop and think about every single thing before we acted on it, life would move very slowly, right? Imagine if you're driving your car, you notice the signal light turns from green to yellow, and you say, huh, I just noticed that light. It was green before, now it's yellow. Oh, whoa, now it's red. If we stopped and thought about everything, life couldn't move the way it does, right? So automatic thoughts is actually an adaptive function, which allows us to function at the speed that we do in life, right? But a lot of the thought processes that we have can be maladaptive, right? We have a wide range of different thought processes. What cognitive behavioral theory says is negative emotional outcomes, negative behavioral outcomes um, are all rooted in maladaptive cognitive processes, right? Some sort of error in the, in the thinking that we have. Our thought pro well, I'll get to the thought process in a second. So let's say a person wakes up with pain, right? They wake up in the morning, they have excruciating pain in their body, significant pain flare. If they think to themselves, you know what, this is never going to end, life is terrible, the day is ruined. 
Well, naturally, they're probably going to feel sad, have some degree of anxiety, anger. Behaviorally, they may overextend themselves or isolate themselves. Uh, they may snap at other people. And they're going to have a higher level of sympathetic activation. That activation is going to intensify the pain. As the pain gets intensified, the thoughts become more polarized, the emotions become more significant, and this cycle just keeps feeding on itself, right? A person can try to do breathing exercises, and the breathing exercises may calm some of that sympathetic drive, but again, if what's going on in the back of their mind is the day is ruined, you know, this is terrible, then it's just going to keep fueling them and keep them stuck in that cycle. So we can't go back and change the pain, right? The pain is there, um, but we can help them learn how to modify this middle section, right? So the first step in cognitive behavioral work is helping people become aware of their thoughts, right? And that by itself can be challenging because, as I mentioned before, our thought processes are automatic. But once they do identify their thoughts, it's not as simple of as, oh, you just need to think positively. I cringe internally whenever I hear people say that, oh, just think more positively about it and you'll feel better. Because there's so many things in life that you can't put a positive spin on, right? Like when you get the pain week schedule and find out that you're the last lecture on Friday <laughs> evening, right? There's no positive spin you can put on that. So what we do since we can't just turn all negatives into something positive, the question that we really ask ourselves and what really drives the negative outcomes is these two things. It's not if it's positive or negative. It's are these thoughts that I'm thinking helpful and are these thoughts accurate? Right? And if we can't, we have to evaluate the thoughts that we have that we've identified and see, can we answer yes to both of these questions? If we can't answer yes to both these questions, then we need to modify the thoughts, right? So in the case of this particular person, there's nothing I can do to control this, right? Well, that's certainly not helpful. If you say there's nothing I can do to control this, that's going to engender a sense of hopelessness, right? So it's not helpful, and it's certainly not accurate, right? There are things that a person can do to control it, right? There are a lot of different behavioral tools or physical tools, medication management, so it's not accurate, it's not helpful. Life is terrible. Same thing, you know, at that point in time, it may be accurate because this person may be suffering quite a bit. So in that case, fine, the statement's accurate, but is it helpful to continue to perseverate on that? Absolutely not, right? Nothing's going to get done today. Again, not helpful, not accurate. We don't know what the rest of the day is going to look like, but if we tell ourselves these things, it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? So... What we do is we work with people to learn how to modify the thoughts into something that is more accurate and helpful. But you've got to make sure that you stay as close to the core of the original thought as possible, right? If a person's thinking, there's nothing I can do to control this, life is terrible, nothing's going to get done today, and you say, oh, well, but just look outside, it's pretty, and the flowers are in bloom. You know, it might be accurate, but do you think your brain is really going to shift to thinking of a nice little positive image when you're stuck in this kind of a rut? Probably not, right? So you need to stay as close to the core thought as possible. So in this situation, the way you'd want to modify it is, instead of there's nothing I can do to control this, I can practice self-management skills and other tools that I learned to help manage my pain. Instead of life is terrible. Life may feel terrible now, but I know this flare will end. So validating some of the thoughts that the person has, but opening the door for things to get better. Nothing's going to get done today. I don't know what the rest of the day is going to look like, but I'll make the most of it by pacing my activities. Right? If a person wakes up in the morning with a pain flare, and they have those different thoughts. This is just a flare, this moment will pass, the day's not set. They're less likely to have the severity, the sadness, the anxiety, and the anger. They may still feel those emotions because they're human beings and they have a pain flare, but the intensity of those emotions is going to be less. Their behaviors may be more adaptive. Instead of overextending themselves or isolating, they may engage in more of the healthier behaviors. 
as they start to do that, if they do things to try to break that nervous system reactivity, like breathing exercises, things along those lines, they can be more adaptive, and basically a person can move on to a higher level of functionality. But with this, this seems simple, but it really isn't, because we don't change our thoughts just because somebody shows you, oh, here's a healthy way to think about things, right? That doesn't change our automatic thoughts. We have to work on this. And also, a person doesn't have just three thoughts in relation to a situation, right? We have 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 different thoughts that pile up in our mind. So we have to actually do this process for a lot of those thoughts in order to start to break them. But what we start to find is as we do this, it starts to bleed over into other areas of our life. Because the way that we interpret one stressor is probably similar to how we interpret other stressors in our life as well. Right? And so as we start to make changes in one arena, it can bleed over into others. But this is very challenging to do because where do you think our core thoughts come from? Where do you think these automatic thoughts originate? Early life experiences, right? All our life, not just early, but all our life experiences shape how we perceive ourselves, how we perceive the world around us, right? Um, my nephew, and my ne- I keep saying my nephew, I've been using this example for 12 years, now he's at Rice and he's doing well, but when he was little, if I took him, if I brought him to San Francisco and I said, I'm, I'm going to show you the end of the world, don't tell your mom, but I'm going to show him the edge of the world. And so I take him out to the Pacific Ocean, I say, you see where the sky touches the water? That's the edge of the earth. Don't go there, you'll fall off, right? When he's young, he'll look up at me and say, wow, and he'll believe that. Right? Because he sees me as an elder and somebody to respect and somebody to trust, which is a big mistake because he shouldn't. But that's how he would believe it. Right? He goes back to Texas. My sister calls me up, gets mad, says he's going to fail geography, and it's my fault. Um, but he's going to believe that because of the, the role that I have. But that's a pretty benign thing. Right? And that's part of the reason why kids believe in Tooth Fairy, Santa Claus, Easter Bunny. I'm sorry, I should have put that in the disclosures that I'm going to kill Santa Claus for you guys today. But... They believe in these things because they're told that these things are real. Again, benign messages. What happens when a kid is told, you're stupid, you can't do anything right, you're not good enough? Whether those messages are direct or if those messages are indirect, right? If they're not getting love or warmth from a parent or from other kids, these things start to become part of how a child looks at the world and looks at themselves in the world, and they carry that with them over the course of time. Even if as an adult they can look back and say, you know what? mom had her issues or the teacher had their issues, it's still, even though they can reconcile where that thought came from, that doesn't necessarily change. That still becomes a lens through which they view the world and how they view themselves. Right? And so these things start to color the way that we interpret all the different situations we have in our life. So this is part of what makes the cognitive behavioral work somewhat challenging because it's not just as simple as let me just replace one thought with another, but we're really delving into some of the deeper thought processes that have been a part of a person's core sense of themselves over the course of their lives, right? But it's very possible to do. It takes a bit of time, it takes a bit of work, and we know that doing this type of work, cognitive behavioral work around pain, can be extremely effective in helping people learn how to manage their pain symptoms. Again, CBT is not gonna fix a person's pain condition, but changing the thought processes that a person has about their pain and about their ability to manage the pain, shifting that locus of control to more self-management is part of what we're doing with the cognitive behavioral therapy. Right? And we can see how, taking this back to opiates, if we're wanting to help a patient come off of their opiate medication, and you're helping them develop more resilience, you're helping them develop more self-efficacy, um, you're helping to break down some of the different things that um, uh, foster their or facilitate their dependence on the medications, it's easy to understand how these can be the tools that help them manage an opiate taper successfully. Right? 
And this cognitive behavioral model is the same model, same approach that we use for treating depression, anxiety, panic, a wide range of anger management, chemical dependency. Actually, all these things fall in cognitive behavioral therapy, right? Addiction is a behavior, right? And so we use cognitive behavioral therapy to help treat addiction. Depression, anxiety, these are emotional outcomes. We use this to help treat that. And there's a significant amount of data, very strong empirical uh, data to support use of these for all those different conditions, as well as in pain. Um, In the interest, oh, okay, I'm not going to go through all these in the interest of time. Uh, But suffice it to say that there have been studies that have been done that look at use of cognitive behavioral programs for pain management and found that people's likelihood of returning to work is much lower, or excuse me, much higher in people who have the CBT and that it remains over the course of time, that the likelihood of going on long-term disability is less. Other authors have uh, put a dollar sign with this and found that use of cognitive behavioral therapies over the course of time can result in decreased costs of medical expenses over the course of time. Now, real quickly, very quickly, we have our inpatient pain program at Stanford where we help wean patients off of opiate medications. So in our inpatient program, we bring patients in. It's all voluntary, uh, and patients come in. They have daily physical therapy, daily occupational therapy. I meet with them every day, and they get a dosage-blinded pain cocktail, right? And what this is is they get 20 cc's of syrup that they get that has usually, as Dr. Haas said, methadone in there, and they're blinded to the concentration of the drug that's in there. They, they always know what they're getting, but they don't know how much. And we're able to manipulate the dose of the medication from one dose to the next. And we do that to eliminate human expectancy, right? If a person is winning their drugs and they see the nurse gives them five pills, but then at the three o'clock dose and they get two pills, there's going to be this natural cognitive process, which is going to say, oh my gosh, this is going to be terrible. I'm going to start to feel worse because I have less medications. But we're able to use a dosage-blinded pain cocktail to eliminate that aspect of it because a patient has no idea if we're going up, down, or making no changes. And we do do all of those things based on how we see the person functioning. But we try to minimize the role of the medications. We say you're getting the cocktail. That's where your medications are, are being managed. But we want you to focus on these other behavioral tools. And so, again, they get the daily PT, daily OT, the daily site sessions. And over the course of the hospital stay, we're able to reduce if not completely eliminate their use of medications. The average length of stay is uh, it's about five or seven days now. Um, but I'm going to quickly show you some outcomes that we have from, uh, from this program. Uh, we administered a series of assessment devices within 24 hours of admission, 24 hours of discharge. Uh, the CESD is a measurement of depression. We saw a statistically and clinically significant reduction in depression. Uh, the Milan pain questionnaire, uh, again, clinically and statistically significant reductions on Uh, uh, affective distress on the summary score, pain-related intensity, on the VAS, clinical and statistically significant reductions, and the profile of mood states. This is a a larger assessment device, but what we basically found was that anger and hostility decreased, tension and anxiety decreased, depression decreased, vigor and activity increased, which is what we want to see. We want to see people become more functional. Um, Fatigue and inertia decreased, confusion and bewilderment decreased. So all these things occurred at clinical and statistical significant levels. Um, and these are all the trends that we like to see. And this is after, at this point in time, our average length of stay was a little bit longer. I think at this point in time, it was closer to 10 days. Um, but we're able to do this. And it wasn't just the vehicle of the cocktail that allowed us to do this, but it was all the other pieces working together, which, again, is the hallmark of interdisciplinary care. So other literature findings have shown that patients who've been weaned off of opiate medications in outpatient programs have also been able to demonstrate similar degrees of success in terms of reducing disability, increasing their overall level of functionality. So 
in the interest of time, um, I won't go over all of those different things, but I do want to kind of close by saying one thing, which is that we're not trying to advocate for you guys that you do or don't prescribe opiate medications for, for your patients with chronic pain. But what we're saying is that you guys should make sure that you exercise as much caution uh, when you do that. Have a degree of thoughtfulness. Look at the patients you're working with and ask yourself, is this an acute pain condition? Is this a chronic pain condition? Is this a person who's slowly transitioning from acute to chronic? And if so, am I re- should I really employ a biopsychosocial approach? How can I start to bring in educational pieces? You don't need to be a psychologist to ask your patient, you know, what are some of the thoughts that you have around your pain? And what you'll probably find is that there's a high level of fear, a high level of frustration associated with the pain. And again, you don't have to be a psychologist to help dispel some of those things, validate some of those things, but then also help them learn different ways of construing their pain and understanding what's happening in their body. So we encourage you guys to have as much um, caution if you have questions. Uh, We'll go ahead and open up for questions now.